I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Utah's best athletes count on flexibility, speed, strength. And the Jazz pick up their 22nd assist. So they count on University of Utah help. Brielle Soleil puts this game away. And so can you. Leading doctors, a world-class environment, award-winning innovation, care to be great. 14 unanswered by the Utes. University of Utah Health, caring for Utah's best and yours. Schedule your appointment now at uofuhealth.org slash care to be great. Radio check. Loud and clear. KSL Sports and KSL Podcast present Mode Push, an American view of F1, starting now. I'm stuck. He's with you, cut. With his Honestly. I've guessed it. I've absolutely guessed it. I enjoyed this so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everybody. Welcome on in. It's another edition right here of Mode Push, an American view of F1. It's our F1 podcast. And I just want to say, too, it's not just the American view, because we have a lot of listeners that are outside of the United States now at this point. So we want to say thank you for downloading the podcast wherever you're found. Now, you might be Americans abroad. Uh, either way, we'll take it. And this is not an American-specific only uh, podcast, Dan Jimenez, my co-host of the program, right? I mean, we'll take all comers here at this point. We're desperate. Oh, we're a big tent for sure. <laughs> we are a big tent. We do not kick anybody out. Uh, I do want to mention, though, at the very top here, if you're listening to the program and maybe you've been recommended to listen to the podcast, we say thank you. We say thanks on behalf of KSL Sports and KSL Podcast and Dan and myself. Uh, I'm going to do a couple of different things here. So uh, I want you to I want you to go and just do us a quick favor. Uh, this is now our 34th episode, just in the last now less than two years or less than a year and a half that we've been doing this thing. And so we're pretty committed to doing this thing every week during the race season and and even more uh, during the actual like race weeks. And so uh, this is not a plea for money at all. <laughs> this is a this is not like and it's our week at NPR here. Where we're asking you for extra dollars <laughs> now. Uh, just go in and, and take a moment and just uh, rate the podcast or tell somebody about it. we would love to get a couple of reviews in there as well we have a handful uh from uh folks that we love and so uh we would appreciate just taking a couple moments go in and rate the podcast on the on the platform of choice that you listen to and write a comment as well give us some feedback i'm going to give my email address out and dan uh i'm putting you on the spot here maybe you want to do the same or not but i'm uh my email is just alexkiry at gmail.com it's A-L-E-X-K-I-R-R-Y at gmail.com. And if you have any questions for either Dan or I, if it's engineering-based, that's going to be a great question for Dan, but I can also get him those uh, those questions as well. So I want to start fielding questions, Dan, from other people who are listening outside of this thing. Uh, I want to start getting some reviews and some things going on this because we want to make this uh, big over time here. Uh, we have day jobs, so we don't need to ask you for your <laughs> uh, we don't need to subscribe. We don't need you to subscribe uh, to anything for money. All we need you is all we need you to do is just have fun listening to the podcast and then uh, rate and review it and uh, 
give us some suggestions and also throw us a question or two that's F one based or race based at all. I mean, frankly, Dan knows a lot more than just about F one, but uh, of course, we talk F one mostly on this podcast. So, Dan, there's my email. Uh, do you have the guts to yeah. get your email address out? Uh, man, this just shows you how old you and I are because mine's just like yours. It's just my first name, last name at yeah, Gmail. Man. So Dan Dan Jimenez at gmail.com. And it just goes to show that we were really old and we got emails when like you know, Google was brand new. Remember when like I got I remember getting that invite. And oh, it yeah. was like, hey man, shh. Don't uh <laughs> now I had a double whammy that I was able to not just get the invite. I also have a, a weird enough name. Dan Jimenez means you actually were on the ground floor, but I remember exactly where I was. I was in college and it was like probably 2004, maybe. That's what I was. Mine was 2004 freshman year. I remember in the dorms. (laughs) Shout out to to Gary Lind, wherever you are, for giving me that (laughs) invite. uh, I don't know who gave me the invite, but I remember getting it and being like, well, this sounds a lot better than... uh, uh, hot chick forty one at uh, at Hotmail. <laughs> I just hotmail. I just yeah. hated the term Hotmail. It just sounded awful. My parents were like, "What are you into?" And I was like, "Geez, <laughs> <laughs> this is not salacious." <laughs> All right, so let's get going on the podcast here. Let's do a little a little bit of some news things. Dan also has a breakdown today of uh, Red Bull's success and what it is equaling currently at this point. Really, what the biggest things that have happened with race with, with their racing performance. Aero stuff, I get very bogged down, and when people start talking about low speed, high speed, medium speed corners, and and kind of you know they're like, oh, this sets up well for this team or whatever. But Red Bull doesn't seem to be behind on anything at this point. So Dan's going to break down a couple of things that they've been doing and how the some of the words that I've heard this week, or at least some of the accusations, Dan, uh, from I think it was George Russell who threw it out there that he was just like, oh yeah. These guys are actually beating the heck out of everybody, and they're holding back. Like, there's actual mm. stuff. Like, they do not want to get called out by F1. This is all according to George, George Russell. They don't want to get called out by F1, so they're not showing you everything because it'd be too big of a disparity, and then they'd start getting looked at more closely, and they don't want any of that noise. So the weirdest flex yeah. of, like, oh, you're, not, you're, not, you're too afraid to show how fast you really are so you don't get busted. <laughs> Uh, while the yeah. rest of us just watch uh, Red Bull beat everybody. So, uh, Dan will have that explanation. I do want to roll this one out and ask you. I thought Honda wanted out of F1. Right, yeah. I thought the Honda power yeah. unit thing was like, hey, man, this has been a great run. We're all about going green now. We don't want to get into the racing thing. We want to focus all on our cars and our factories and blah, blah, blah. What on earth is Honda now flirting with Aston Martin? Who, whose current uh, power unit provider is Mercedes, obviously. But but how is it that, that Honda suddenly jumped back into the game or at least started to come back in there? Is this more giving us an indication that their relationship with Red Bull may have soured a little bit more? Or what are we, what are we getting from this? Really good question. They, I feel like Honda changes their mind more than a moody teenager. Like, I think we're all just over their flakiness on, are you going to be in the sport or are you not going to be in the sport? And I think that your your theory sounds the best to me. It's that it might have been more just directly about like working with Red Bull is a pain in the butt. And so they got out of that uh, relationship and Aston Martin, they've got money. They're looking to make a, a splash. Uh, Lawrence Stroll wants a championship. So if they are going to stay in the sport, I think that is a logical team to go with. And I think that Lawrence Stroll would probably also want to get out of underneath the shadow of being like the Mercedes B team too. So I think this is kind of uh, maybe them trying to stake their flag in the ground as 
as more of an independent top tier team with uh, their own engine manufacturer. But I don't understand the logic from Honda. Are you going to be in? Are you going to be out? Like it's clear that it's uh, it's a popular sport with rising popularity. That's why it was weird so, when they got out in the first place. You're like, what are you guys doing? You're winning races, and then you're doing this like riding off into the sunset thing. I don't know what's going on here. And then they were still providing. Like a lot of the parts that are sitting on Max Verstappen's soon-to-be championship-winning uh, car this year, you know, still have Honda blood in them, mm-hmm. and, and you know they might have a different badge on them because power, the you know uh, Red Bull Power or whatever makes the makes these engines now. But I mean, like without the development of of Honda, you're not able to make that transition to to what that is. I just thought it was an interesting thing this week. And here's the other thing: mm-hmm. if you're Aston Martin, why on earth do you want to walk away from the engine that's been they've given you the best? Uh, the best shot in I don't know how long for this team and walking away from that relationship, unless Mercedes is the one that says, nah, you guys are beating the heck out of us and we're the worst team. Like get out of here. Yeah, that is definitely a risk. Uh, I think that they're hoping just for a new era that in 2026, that they're winning races and that uh, I mean, Honda comes with lots of experience and, you know, championship experience as well. So it's, it's not like, uh, you know, a brand new engine manufacturer uh, that would be, I think a lot more risky. I think that it's, it's probably a pretty safe bet uh, going with Honda and and all the years that they've had on in the sport. Uh, Did you throw your hat in the ring to apply for an Audi F1 job in the last week, Dan, because they started hiring (laughs) this last week. They're going to hire 300 people by the end of the year to already get their uh, stuff going and get everything developing by the time they can get this uh, Audi car Audi, Sauber, whomever car onto the track in 2026. Is that what it is? Uh, Right, 2026. So they're hiring everybody out, and so they're going to have 300 new employees there. Now, the funniest part about this, and again, salacious rumors that I have no problem spreading. uh, (laughs) Carlos Sainz, I read this article about how he soured a little bit of what's going on in Marinello, which Mm -hmm. I don't think Ferrari sours on people. I think what happens is – you can. I think it's a lot of pressure that one isn't deserved because the team's not good enough right now to have that pressure. It's like, why am I getting murdered in the freaking Italian media that is awful and mm-hmm. dealing with this and not having a great car? You know, it's a bummer because this is guy's one of the better racers on the grid. But the rumor is that he would be somebody who may be interested in that first Audi drive in 2026. That would mean, of course, he would have to walk away from Ferrari. But uh, I don't know. Does somebody actively walk away from Ferrari and go to a brand new team? Would that be totally unprecedented? I would imagine with all of the ups and downs in F1 that it's not totally uh, out of the realm of, of historically what has happened. But but still, this is the place that Carlos Sainz, uh, you know, certainly Charles Leclerc, like this is the team that they have always wanted to be on for their entire lives. And here they are. And there's a little bit of grumpiness there at the very least. Yeah, I wouldn't blame them if they left. That's for sure. I, especially if the rest of the season goes like how it's already gone, I would start thinking, you know, in 2024, how do I position myself for uh, any open seat at a top tier team? Because it's the opportunities don't come around all that often to get a seat in a in a you know a top tier team. Now it's very early to be able to say that Audi is a top tier team. They're going to be you know a manufactured team, so. They'll, I, you know, I think not being, you know, a slouch, but I, uh, I think that that could be exciting. I, for Ferrari to lose pr- drivers proact, like voluntarily, like wanting to leave, 
that uh, is a big black mark uh, on that brand. But I mean, they just got to get their act together to to want to be the place that drivers want to go. I think they'll always be, you know, attractive to up and coming talent uh, that wants to make a name for themselves. And so, you know, thinking about the midfield, like Lando Norris, you know, should he go to Ferrari? Could he be a replacement for Carlos Sainz? Probably like, like that might line up well with his contracts. So, so yeah, I think uh, it's, uh, it's very interesting. Hopefully um, they can get some, you know, local homeboy blood uh, there too, with uh, maybe a a German uh, driving one of the Audis. Let me ask you this though, because oh, I don't even know. Can you put? Can you buy Audi gear already? I mean, I'm like on board. Hold on a minute. I'm doing a search while we're while we're doing this. Audi Audi F1 gear. F1 gear. I want merch, man. You know, I drive an Audi. I'm all about. I'll pretend like I've been on this since day one. So I <laughs> like look. Yes, you can get Audi gear. Wow. Audi Sport Good is for a them. Thing, They're man. on it. They will absolutely sell you some Audi. Uh, F1 stuff. Now, I haven't been able to afford Audi F1 gear or any F1 gear, it seems like, in the last little bit. But these seem to be on the cheap because it definitely does not seem uh, licensed at all by anybody. (laughs) (laughs) This looks like the stuff that you'd get in, uh, you know, when you're hanging out in South America and you go, oh, that looks like a great price on that. And definitely is not this. Oh, they only have three rings on Audi on this one. Yeah, there's uh, there's (laughs) (laughs) there's some of that in there. Okay, Uh, well, let me see here. So with Carlos Sainz and the possibility of that, I don't know. Speaking of Carlos Sainz, uh, he did make a he did make it a he did make a statement. He says that uh, on on now, tell me if this is wrong. F one gave him the fu by telling him that they're not even going to look at it, <laughs> like they're not even going to look at that the penalty that they were going to review. He said two weeks later. I think the penalty is too hard, disproportionate, and I believe it should have at least been reviewed. F1 said, we're not even going to review this thing. Uh, yeah, we're denying you the the, the, the right to review. So uh, he walks away from that thing. The further you can – I think the more you talk about this, if you're Carlos Sainz, it just looks like sour grapes, and it just seems like a waste of time. But uh, it is not – it just is all these things piling up for a guy who has – who probably going into the season thought – I'm going to be top three in the world championship race this year. I think that if you're Carlos Sainz, you have to be above it all at this point. You, okay, you appealed. They didn't accept it. You move on. Uh, to your point, he's starting to look like uh, the Warriors, like complaining about Sabonis swinging the ball too hard. It's hey. like, come on, man. Just like your Ferrari. <laughs> Just move on, you know, and act like act like champions. Uh, I think that if you're at Formula One, these reviews, like it's like anybody, every everybody can appeal almost anything. Right. So I, you have to be selective in what you're willing to review. Uh, and because I think if, uh, they uh, allow a review for everything, then everyone is just going to like want to complain and it's going to create a lot of process. And then it's so hard to rule. I think with, uh, um, you know, uh, consistently, because we've talked about how, you know, the rule book is super thick, but then in the end it's left up a lot to the race stewards judgment in the moment. So I'm not totally like, uh, mad that, you know, for, uh, formula one decided to say, you know, this one, we, yeah, stick by the call as it was made and, you know, let's move on to the next game. It's, it's sort of, you know, this happens in, I've learned a lot about the, uh, officiating in a lot of these sports, you know, since it's just kind of my job to talk about sports. And so, um, in Major League Baseball, they absolutely train their umpires 
uh, to not do – basically, if somebody argues, they can't even bring it up. Like, they know that they're wrong on stuff. They'll know that they'll be wrong on things. And If a guy gets thrown out of the game, you can't reverse that, for example. So if a guy gets thrown out of a game – so somebody got thrown out the other day, and it was like a really questionable thing. Like, no, no, it was a misunderstanding. The guy definitely should not have been thrown out. It was a, it was a catcher who had been thrown out for something really asinine. And, and the, you know, mm-hmm. the manager comes out, but the guy had tossed him, and then you can't go back on it. And that's the rule. And it was like – and then it was like, and I can't talk about – uh, why I threw them out even with you anymore. And so they have this conversation. Yeah. Then it's just them bickering one against the other, and their whole thing is, is like, well, listen, we're going to get bogged down way too much in semantics on the field. That It's one thing to be reviewing it during a, a race, too, which sometimes they, they also do. Obviously, stewards have to make kind of in-race decisions as well. But it's one thing to be like, hey, man, I'm not going to talk about this right now because we have a baseball game going on. I'm not going to talk about this right now. We have a race week coming up. And we can't have every little conversation with everybody about why we chose this. And, and, and the line between racing incident and, uh, you know, your fault and it's going to cost you five seconds, you know, sometimes I'm still unclear on that, but that one didn't seem nearly uh, as close as he's probably creating it to be. So uh, in that yeah. sense, Carlos Sainz wins the award this week of being the biggest baby. Uh, and, and, you know, <laughs> knocking off our current and almost usual champion, George Russell, in, uh, in the complaining that he does, and uh, right along his teammate, uh, <laughs> Lewis Hamilton. So let's get into a little bit of those are just some of the breaking news things here. But last week we were talking about how you wanted to dive in on how Red Bull has become so dominant this year. Uh, and people who are joining F1 for the first time in the last few years, Mercedes was dominant and won seven consecutive constructors' titles. And that was insane. And in race in and race out, as a new F1 person, as a new F1 fan myself, I remember thinking, this is a sport problem because you don't want to have somebody so dominant. It's one thing to have a dynasty, but dominance is not dynasty necessarily. And dynasties imply that they don't happen very often, uh, you know, as it is. But we've gone from Mercedes, who was super dominant, to now Red Bull, who's in their second uh, probably in a row, constructors' title and third racers' title in the last uh, three years, and it's even more despairing. <laughs> I think the 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 gap is even bigger for Red Bull in comparison to the other teams and their performance. Where is that performance coming from, Dan? Yeah, the uh, it it's so hard to know for sure, right? Because obviously Red Bull's not going to just open up their playbook to everybody. And so the way to find out or kind of pick up on the the clues and the hints of what another team is doing is kind of limited to what you can see on the exterior and the, uh, of the car, as well as what can you see in the data. Right. And so then it just becomes like this, um, this, uh, kind of challenge of like, who's the best investigative, uh, uh, engineer into looking uh, at all the data and you know the photography that all these teams get after each race weekend they'll come back and uh, they'll have you know gig- hundreds of gigabytes of uh, of uh, photos taken uh, from people in the paddock that are hired by the teams to take close-up shots and then try to figure out okay what you know what's Red Bull trying to do so two things that's some Bill that... Belichick that's some Bill Belichick level stuff <laughs> But it like totally. is par for the course in this sport, though, right? I'm coming to yeah. find out. Yeah, it's just that that's just uh, what you have to do. So a couple of things that uh, I've been reading up on uh, that Red Bull is kind of 
either doing uniquely or is really standing out in the data. So maybe we'll do the data one first. And it's really cool that F1 publishes a lot of this telemetry from the cars because the, you know, super fans can dig into it and start to um, find interesting trends and insights to share with the rest of us that a lot of other motorsports um, series don't do. But uh, the first one is uh, and shout out to the F1 data analysis, Twitter uh, account uh, for both be, of these. That would be one of your follows, wouldn't it? Oh, it's a great, it's a great follow. So <laughs> shout out to, to that guy. But the first one is DRS effectiveness. So the DRS, we all know is the drag reduction system that uh, during certain points of the track uh, of the lap, the, the, the car lifts a, uh, an element of the rear uh, wing so that it can gain a speed advantage down the straight relative to the car in front of it. If it's within a second, they can use their DRS. And so the DRS effectiveness is really like how much extra performance does uh, a team eke out of their car when their DRS is Mm -hmm. open versus when it's closed and a more effective DRS will look on the track. Like, Oh my gosh, like, Max is able to pass people so easily on the straights when he's in DRS. And I think we saw that as he was coming up through the field um, in the last couple of races. And is that, just that pure, he just, is that just a pure speed thing then too? Like, is it just pure speed that you gain from that? Or is it also, uh, you know, I guess maybe the lack of, of I, I, what else are you gaining from that? Or maybe is it a little bit more downforce or what else is the, that wing being yeah. open do? Uh, it's all about just straight line speed. Um, as soon as the drivers hit the brakes, then that automatically disengages the DRS and that element drops back down on the rear wing. And you know, the, now it's like in high downforce mode. So when it's, uh, the DRS is open and it's in low, low drag mode, then it's all just about hitting a higher top speed before you get to the corner. And so we've seen it with max that he's able to just, when he's under DRS, his speed differential uh, relative to the car in front of him is is just so much. So, looking at the data, um, the amount of like uh, drag reduction that we can predict uh, based based off of like the data uh, by team is uh, it's really interesting. So here's the range. So Aston Martin comes in with the lowest DRS effectiveness at twenty three point six percent. So you could think of, of that as um, they are, they have 23% less drag when their, uh, DRS is open than when it's closed. Mm. It, and then, then you go through the list, uh, Aston Martin, then Alpine, Mercedes, McLaren, Williams, uh, Alpha Tauri, Ferrari, Alpha, uh, Romeo, Haas, and then Red Bull as the most effective at 37.5%. Wow, so geez. Aston Martin was 23.6. Red Aston Bull 37.5. When you hear that, you're like, how is Aston Martin even competing? But maybe their straight line speed prior to even having their DRS open, maybe it's a little bit more than some of these other teams who have better effectiveness by percentage, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what it shows to me is that, um, you know, Red Bull is they have a very aggressive rear wing in terms of how much downforce it's creating and then therefore uh translating probably into a lot of drag hmm. and so they're they're probably just banking on hey we're going to be out in clear air because we'll qualify up front and then we're going to be able to you know run around in clean air manage our tires and if we ever get uh put back into the pack then um we'll gain uh, a lot of that uh, speed back by just you know how we design our DRS because you can design the car for how does the air flow around it when the DRS is closed 
as well as for how does the airflow around it when the DRS is open. And so they might have a, a design that's more optimized for low drag when the DRS is open. So there's, um, it, it's just a, a bit of an interesting data point to see. Uh, and it kind of definitely jives with, uh, how, um, you know, we see the racing playing out when the Red Bulls get back in the pack that they're able to just kind of pick up spots really quickly because of how low drag their car is when the, when the DRS is open, you know, that's, that's item number one. I was thinking about this in terms of like an American sport thing where, because all the drivers and all the team principals and anybody associated with these other teams. And I don't know if it's more of a sandbagging thing. Like you just don't want to, you just, it's okay. Like you don't want to talk about how your performance is so bad. It's maybe it's easier to just talk about how, how awesome Red Bull is and they're beating everybody and they're the class of, because at any point in any other sport that I seem to follow, it's like you are never going to, there's parody, you know? And I hate that word actually for sports, but they're like, you know, the ability to be from one team to the next to have it be close I mean, right now with the amount of points that Red Bull has scored versus second place Aston Martin, they've doubled them up almost. Uh, and and then, you know, it's not even close, not even close, and it's not going to be close. And the reliability that Red Bull has is pretty darn good this year compared to what was last year at this time. And so, um, when you see just even giant disparities like that, okay, so you have this one thing, and, and the arrow stuff is what Adrian Newey, who is like the godfather of of uh, of Arrow. I feel like right. I mean, like he's mm-hmm. he's Red Bull's, uh, you know, back pocket like secret weapon, right? Isn't that kind of how they're yeah. looking at this guy right now? Yeah, yeah, and he's been around the sport forever, and yeah, he uh, is. It, he was part of the kind of the whole co- cost cap controversy because he's technically a consultant and not like a Red Bull employee. So somehow his salary isn't included in the cost cap, which I just don't understand how that works. But yeah, he's like the godfather of, uh, of Formula One car development and aero for the last 20 years. So item two, we've seen the DRS. And, and the DRS is all standard for everybody, right? Like, And is the, dri- the driver uh, enables it, right? Doesn't Don't they activate yeah. it? Okay. They, and then the yep, brake they is have automatic a button. when it turns it off. Correct. Yep. The driver activates it. And sometimes you get issues where the DRS doesn't open when it should. And I think we've seen that in some races in the past few years. And yeah. that can be really annoying as a driver. But yeah, so that's item number one. Item number two. Okay, I'm going to try and do this. Uh, it's going to be a nerdy topic. Here we go, Egghead. But I'm going to do the best I can <laughs> to visual help the uh, listener at home visualize what we're talking about here. But um, when we think about Arrow, you know, the the amount of downforce that a car creates changes throughout the lap based on like the attitude of the car. Like how is it, is it pitched? Is it rolled? Is it yawed out? Like in the corners, like basically how the car moves on the track will affect your aerodynamic dynamic performance as well as the balance, you know, as a, as a bunch of the aero load on the front, is it on the back? And that really dictates how, um, how the car performs. So we can control, uh, you can control that based on how you set up the car with uh, its suspension and its springs and its basic kind of suspension design. And um, ideally you would like to have the car be at like the optimal angle of attack uh, for aerodynamic performance, the entire way around the track, but that would require like really stiff suspension that would be bad. And like uh, you know, if you hit a bump or if you're in slow corners. And so it's, it's always a trade-off. Now there's, been a lot of um, smoke and rumor in the last couple of weeks of people accusing, well, Red Bull's running an active suspension. 
and an active suspension is, uh, and you know, we have a, now on our modern day cars and, uh, kind of, uh, sports cars or even, um, uh, like off-road, you know, trucks and stuff, but an active suspension is basically, uh, a fluid inside of the, 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 the dampers, the shocks that can change its viscosity. And so that if it's going fast or going slow, it can behave differently, uh, and optimize the performance of the suspension based on, uh, kind of what the car is doing now that's illegal in F1. Uh, there are no active suspensions. And I think anybody who is accusing Red Bull is like of, uh, having an active suspension is like, I don't know. I don't think anybody in the paddock is really making that accusation. Cause that's, that's like pretty, um, uh, dramatic to accuse that. But there are ways to get the same type of uh, response out of the suspension uh, that are a bit simpler. And one of those is called anti-dive. And if you think about when you're driving a car and you hit the brakes, like the nose dips, right? You kind of dive onto the front and all the weight goes onto the front of the tires. And you can think about like the arrow as well will move to the front. It's called the center of pressure. We'll move to the front of the car. Um, and then when you get on the gas and the car heaves backwards, then it all kind of does the opposite. And so anti-dive is like, uh, a force that you can generate in the car based on the design of your, um, your suspension arms. So these, these wheels, they're attached to the cars with, um, you know, two primary like wishbones, uh, they're kind of in the shape of a triangle with the pointy ends. Uh, attached to like the spindle or the wheel and then the the base of the triangle attached to the car Mm -hmm. and those wishbones there's an upper and a lower one and how you mount those to the car and like the angle that they make if you're looking at the car from the side view the angle that they make um and how they're the kind of the attitude of those wishbones creates a geometry that determines the anti-dive like and you have this center of gravity of the, or center of mass of the car, which is kind of like the driver's back, you know, that's pretty much where the center of mass is. And so depending on how you set the the design and how much anti-dive you build into the car, what you can actually do is that when you hit the brakes, the forces that are generated in the front suspension act like it's a, almost like you've got a really stiff front suspension and it keeps the nose from diving. That's why it's called anti-dive. It keeps the car at like a, a consistent angle. And then you can do the same for the reverse as well. So what Red Bull seems to be doing based on observations and photos and everything is that they have a very aggressive front suspension anti-dive and and the anti-dive allows them to run the car lower the entire lap without necessarily having to have really stiff front springs. So they can have the same like soft front springs, but when they get into the corner and Max puts on the brake, the geometry of the front suspension acts like a, a stiff spring just with the way that it's configured and they keep the, the attitude of the car uh, where it needs to be. So it doesn't like bottom out or hit the nose or something like that. And so Red Bull can run the, the car really low the entire race uh, or, or the entire way around the lap and kind of gain a bit of an advantage. Now, why isn't everybody doing this? It's If it's obvious that they're doing something different, everybody could try it. It has uh, lots of other trade-offs that you have to make um, with how the car acts. But one of them is like feel like it would, it changes the way that the car feels and drives. And so you would have to have drivers that have gotten really used to driving a car with lots of anti-dive um, that could know how to still get the performance out of the car. So you, they would have to drive the corners a little bit differently, but in the end, it's a net benefit um, if they're able to handle, handle the car. So I think it would be, a, you know, kind of kudos to Max and, and uh, 
uh, Sergio, if they've figured out how to drive a car that might not drive uh, how they're you know normally used to the car driving, all for the sake of gaining a bit of a uh, of an aero advantage. So you that's know, it, that's reason number two. It was actually appropriate this week that you brought up the active suspension stuff because um, active suspension was like so many other things in in uh, in motor racing became something that was born in F1 and then lived and then started to live in real cars that they put in production that, you know, like we drive today. And it was a, it was a Williams team invention. It was a Frank Williams uh, team invention in the early 90s. And when they yeah. and when they and it was part of the regulations because they wouldn't have, you know, said, hey, you can't have an active suspension because it was never something that was ever invented. So they actually mm-hmm. did this. They, they invented this pneumatic, you know, uh, active suspension and. They won by a freaking landslide the 1993 constructors title with uh, Alan Prost winning the championship that year, and I think that there were races that they were up two and a half laps per or two oh, and a half seconds per lap uh, yeah. on teams. Oh my gosh! I mean, that's just the, the difference that a piece of technology like that made. And then, yeah, at some point they were like, "Hey, listen, what's going on here?" And they had to share. And then, uh, and then at some point they took it away and they said, "Hey." Awesome uh, piece of technology. We'll put it on real cars in the real world, but let's do like real racing cars for now. So the Williams <laughs> in 1993 was the first active suspension. It was invented by an F1 team, and they uh, they crushed everybody. So if there's some version of that, and we're seeing Red Bull crushing everybody, uh, it seems that it would make sense. Although now the regulations are so tightly uh, you know, guarded, tightly you know, implemented. Yeah. And even though there's some differential between the cards and some of the things that they do arrow-wise – uh, you know, overall, there are things you cannot mess with on a car, and that's kind of one of them. Yeah, that's one that would be very hard to hide what they're doing. Um, red anybody who looked at the car without like the front cover on it would quickly see it. So, yeah, yeah. So, I guess if you're at home or driving in your car and you have a button that lets you uh push sport mode and it changes how the ride of your car feels, you uh, you know, thank, thank Frank Sir Williams, Williams for that. Yeah. Say, Thank Sir Frank Williams for uh, and his team for that. I think there was, you know, some as always. There's usually some brainiac engineer who actually develops it, and then Frank Williams, of course, put his put his name on it because it was his team. Anyway, okay, <laughs> what else you got? I think that's it. Those okay, are the two perfect. main, uh, you know, uh, observations so far as you know, suspension design that keeps the car at like seemingly the perfect attitude or angle of attack for performance, uh, aero performance. And then the DRS is super effective. So when they get back in the pack, they can, you know, just zip their way up uh, back to the front really quickly. It seems interesting too, because at the same time, you know, racing drivers like their car to behave a certain way more than, you know, I I think that they were saying that, that uh, in Max Verstappen's case, he likes a little bit of understeer. And some people like oversteer, and I'm like, I don't know why you would like either of those things. Like, but for some reason, I guess I can deal with it a little bit better. What does that mean when somebody says, "Yeah, oh yeah, he loves, yeah. he loves to have his car a little bit more aggressive, and he likes to, to you know, be able to, uh, he likes a little bit more understeer." Yeah, understeer is when you go into the corner and you turn the wheel, and um, it pushes out to the outside of the corner, um, and you end up like, it's like one way to say it is like understeer is when you go through a corner and you hit the wall with the front of the car. Uh, and uh, oversteer is when you go through the corner and you hit the wall at the back with of the, the car. So oversteer is okay. like, if you've ever like 
lost it around a corner driving in the snow and you got to counter, you know, steer right. into the corner mm -hmm. that's oversteer. And then understeer is like, Oh, I, you know, cooked it way too hard in this corner. And now my front tires are screeching. So why would a driver want one more than the other? It's all about confidence and predictability and what the car is going to do. So with understeer, um, you know, Max can be more aggressive on the entry of the corner um, because uh, he, you know, knows the car isn't going to uh, pitch out, like kind of uh, turn uh, sure. out on him where some, a driver who likes oversteer um, can be more aggressive in the mid corner and coming off the corner. So they'll have a, a better kind of mid to uh, corner exit uh, because the car will rotate into the corner more, uh, more easily. And so, uh, man, it's, it's something in NASCAR that we fought all the time. It was like the driver's would always say, oh, it's, it's, uh, oversteering into the corner and then it's understeering in the middle and then it's oversteering on the way out. It's like every driver complains about that. <laughs> and it's like, well, that's just like the physics of the car. Sorry, man. Like, that's what it's like. I can't really change that. Sure. And so they have to, uh, you know, drivers have to change their styles if they want it. Uh, like the, ultimately what you want to do is use all four tires as effectively as possible, like right at their limits. So if you, if a driver is really uh, oversteering a lot, they're just going to burn through their tire, their front tires really quickly. And then they'll be really slow in the corners. And then if somebody, uh, oversteers a bunch, they're going to burn up their rear tires and then they're not going to be able to get up out of the corner. Um, as quick as as other folks, so it's uh it's all part of the tire management game. If somebody asks though, and they go, "Oh, so why is Red Bull so fast?" Because I heard they're pretty dominant. You just go, uh, either listen to this episode of of Mug Push, or you just go, "Hey, look, Red Bull is smarter than everybody currently." Like that's kind of the end of it. It's just like they have stuff figured out right now, and you know because you're so dominant, people mistake it for cheating, right? I mean, they just go, "Oh yeah, this is this is cheating." Uh, do you think you'd be – would you be shocked if there was some little thing that they were kind of, you know, doing, I guess, and pushing that envelope when it comes to the cheating? If you're not cheating, you're not uh, trying. I guess there – what was the what was the saying in NASCAR, you know, uh, rubbing is racing? Yeah. In, in F1, yeah. Yeah, if, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. So there you go. Exactly, yeah. All these teams are doing something that they would like uh, F1 to not know about, right? <laughs> um, and uh, so, no, I would not be surprised. Uh, but I, I'm sure it's – pretty minor performance gains. I mean, to George Russell's point, as much as it bugs me, like to George Russell's point, like Red Bull wouldn't want to be, uh, uh, you know, two Showing and a half everything. seconds faster than everybody right. else, because then F1 will just like confiscate their car and like tear through it. <laughs> so you just want to be just fast enough relative to the competition. But I, I doubt that uh, they would able be able to do anything that was, I mean, they all add up, right? It's like, who can find those performance gains in, in enough quantity of like small wins to to all add up uh to to be in the fastest car so um yeah it's a game of always chasing uh chasing the fastest car and figuring out what they're doing that you're not all right here's what we're gonna do next week dan that was beautiful that was that was as nerdy of a of an explanation as you've ever done on the show and it was it's the main reason why we keep you coming back because this is the, this right. is the somebody always knows more than we do you're the adrian newey of our of our podcast so uh, we'll somehow have to figure out how to hide your salary in the uh, without using the cost cap. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> this week coming up, there is actually a race. Thank heavens, right? So by the time you download this and listen to it, we're already going to be uh, planning a race preview for Baku. And with that, I also have – I was thinking about doing it this week, but we, we ran out of time. But I'm, I've got it for next week. All of the things that these drivers do in the off season are in the downtime. And certainly they had a little bit of it extra here. Maybe you saw pictures of it. But what these uh, – 
racers like to do on the grid to relax and do as their other hobbies. Dan, did you have fun this week? Yeah. Oh, man. This is my bread and butter. I love this stuff. <laughs> I just hope I didn't put anybody to sleep. We'll, awesome. we'll have to pay, pace ourselves with how, how often we get nerdy. All right. Review it. Uh, rate it. Subscribe. Send us emails however you want. Uh, Mode Push is going to be here for you. So, for Dan, I'm Alex. We'll talk to you next week, everybody. Happy racing. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.